The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Uh, thanks, Rick, and thanks uh, to all of you. I appreciate the welcome. It's good to be here, good to be with you today. Um, where do you envision yourself 10 years from now? Some of you have thought about that question a lot recently because you're about to graduate. There are others of you that are sitting here saying, I'm just trying to make it to the end of the semester. Please don't ask me any more questions about my future. Some of us are wired in a certain way that we think about that question a lot. Others, not so much. Some of you might be in the ministry. Some of you might have jobs. Some of you might have families when you think about where you might be 10 years from now. Statistically speaking, with a room this size, and I'm making an assumption that at various degrees and various levels that you're all following Jesus right now. Statistically speaking, some of you 10 years from now will no longer be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <laughs> it's a real uplifting beginning to a message, huh? One of the things I'm passionate about is I see more and more how many people are deconstructing their faith, it's kind of a trendy term these days, walking away from their faith in Jesus. And the more and more I talk about people and talk to people who have walked away from their faith in Jesus, they do it for various reasons. But rarely do I ever hear a good reason why someone will walk away from their faith. Sometimes the reasons that I hear that somebody walks away from their faith is they're tired of too many judgmental and hypocritical Christians. Sometimes people walk away from their faith because they're tired of some of the hurts and the pains and the abuses and, and things that the church has brought about. Sometimes people walk away from their faith because their life just has not turned out the way that they've wanted it to. And somehow they think that Jesus has this notion or following Jesus has this notion that he's going to keep us happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise all of our days. And I've realized that when people walk away from Jesus, oftentimes they're actually walking away from a Jesus that they've conjured up in their own mind. So one of the things that I'm passionate about is helping people to understand the reality of who Jesus is. And that we don't remain a follower of Jesus just because all Christians are acting the way that they should be. Or because the church is acting perfectly the way that it should be. Or that life is turning out just the way that we want it to. So my desire, my goal, is to share a little bit with you today about Jesus to help keep us pointed directly at him so that no matter what we might go through, we will consider what the most important aspects are of being a follower of Jesus, even if we would get to the point that we would consider walking away from him. So one of the things I want to share with you today is I want you to think about the paradox that is Jesus Christ. And when we think about the paradox of who he is, we'll come face to face, not only with his purpose of why he came, but then we'll have to wrestle with our own purpose as well. So when we think about the paradox of Jesus, and I, I'm sure some of you have wrestled with this and you've thought about this, but have you ever thought about the claims that Jesus has made about himself and what that then directly says about who then we are? Jesus claimed to be the bread of life as if then everyone else is hungry. He claimed to be our living water as if everyone else is then thirsty. 
He claimed to be the light of the world as if everyone else is steeped in darkness. He claimed to be our forgiveness as if everyone else is sinful. He claimed to be the resurrection and the life as if everyone else is destined to die. He made the claim to be the way and the truth and the life and saying no one else holds that title. His claims about himself, in some regards, are ludicrous because they're so self-centered. Come to me. Believe in me. Here's the reality of who I am. And we'll talk about it in a moment, but it's interesting how some people choose to say, well, I'm not sure about that whole Savior thing with Jesus. I just believe that he was a good teacher or a good example. If you have somebody that you're following in life that you think is just a good teacher, a good example, and he's making the claims about himself that Jesus made, if those claims are not true, it's ludicrous. And why would you follow someone like that if it's not true? So he made ludicrous self-centered claims about himself, but his behavior was then clothed with humility. Throughout human history, there's been lots of arrogant and self-centered people who acted like it. There's also been lots of humble people who never made the bold claims about themselves that Jesus has made. John Stott sums up the paradox of Jesus so well when he says this. It's the combination of his egocentricity and humility that is so startling. The egocentricity of his teaching and the humility of his behavior. He who claimed to be his disciples' Lord humbled himself to be their servant. Let's consider the reality of the paradox of Jesus in the passage that Rick just read and the passage that so clearly exemplifies this quote from John Stott. So John chapter 13, trust that you're there with me this morning. The amount of time that the gospel writers spend on the last days and the last hours of Jesus is really astounding. John chapter 12, we get the triumphal entry. By John 13, we're in the upper room. Almost half of John's gospel is spent on those last few days of Jesus. Someone once said that the gospels are really passion narratives with extended introductions. There's something significant about those last days and those last hours of Jesus' life that those gospel writers are saying, pay attention to this. There's something significant in those last days and those hours that we don't want you to miss. So we dig into God's word, we dig into the gospels, we dig into the scriptures to see the reality of who Jesus is so that our life and our faith is grounded in the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the upper room, Jesus is behind closed doors with his disciples. A final pep talk, final preparation to help them be prepared to the ministry that they would have once Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended back to the Father. And he's going to give them an object lesson of washing their feet to help them to understand the reality of the way that they should treat one another and their approach into this sin-filled, broken, and dying world. But before we get to the foot washing, notice the detail that John gives us in the setup of Jesus washing their feet. 
verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, for those that know your gospels well, how many times did Jesus say earlier in the gospels, it's not yet my time. My hour has not yet come. Now Jesus knew that his hour had come. What does that mean? He knew the purpose and the reason for why he had come to planet earth. The reason for the incarnation was set before him. He is about to suffer and die for the sins of the world. He knows that this is his last few moments. And where is his focus geared for? And where is his, the the specifics of what his, is it on himself and the suffering that he's about to take place? No, his focus is on his disciples. And his focus continues to be on the preparation that they need to follow in his footsteps after he is gone. He knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, are we ready for Jesus to get down and wash their feet? Not quite. John needs to give us a little bit more details. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John wants to make it very clear who the betrayer is. It's so interesting how the gospel writers make it explicitly clear who it, who it is that betrayed them as if to say, it wasn't me. It's Judas. It's Judas Iscariot. It's Simon's son. Make sure you know that detail. Was Judas possessed by, by the devil? Was he possessed by a demon? Is that why that was the case? No, I don't think he was possessed. We are influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the devil, and really the world and the flesh, love to sow seeds in our life. And that seed was sowed in Judas' heart, and Judas allowed it to grow. Unhealthy things have the potential to grow in our hearts. Anger, bitterness, jealousy. And our job as we walk in the Spirit is to rip them out cut them off, to do regular landscaping in in our hearts in order to make sure that the things that can foster and fester there don't grow. Judas' selfishness, his jealousy, his greediness grew in his heart and he's going to betray Jesus. Now there is some debate as to what the timing and the sequence of this passage is and whether Judas was there when Jesus was washing their feet. I personally believe that he was. And I believe John helps us to indicate that in the sequence of how he puts this together. But I understand how some, as they look into the original language and whatever, would understand that Judas had left before before Jesus washed their feet. But I personally believe that he is there. And whether he's there or not, Jesus understands what Judas is about to do. He also understands what Peter's about to do. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. And he also knows that the rest of those disciples, most of the rest of the disciples, are about to abandon him. Knowing that all of that is still true, Jesus still chooses to get down on his hands and knees and to wash their feet. So now after verse 2, is it time for Jesus to get down and wash their feet? No, there's some more detail that John needs to tell us. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had 
three things. Given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and he was going back to God. What does this tell us that Jesus understood about himself? He understood his authority. He understood his origin, where he had come from, and he understood where he was going. Jesus' worldview was securely in place. And as a result of his worldview being securely in place, he could then follow through and do what he was about to do. For you and I, it is so critical that we live our lives with a biblical worldview. And when we understand the reality of who we are from a biblical perspective, it then frees us up because of our security in Christ to then serve and love others. If we're not secure in the reality of who we are in Christ, then we might live a life that's marked by manipulation, by deceit, to try to do things to get other people to like us and other people to affirm us and other people to approve of us. But if we're secure in the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ, it frees us up that we don't have to live a life trying to impress others and trying to get the praise of others, but we can live a life that's given to serving and love others because we're secure in our biblical worldview of who we are in Christ. Jesus knew who he was. He knew the authority that he had. He knew where he was from and he knew where he was going and that freed him up to do what he's about to do. And now with all of that set up, now, we're ready to see the description of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples and notice all the details that John gives us. He was there. He saw it. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the details of what he witnessed in Jesus washing their feet. Notice all the action verbs that were given. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John gives us all of the details of what took place when Jesus rose from supper and did this. It was a vivid description and those disciples were probably in shock because what Jesus was doing was so unexpected. For most today, there's not a need to wash feet. And even in churches and times that people do wash one another's feet, it's more ceremonial than anything else. If you knew that you were going to a foot washing ceremony and someone was going to wash your feet, what would you do before you arrived? You would wash your own feet, right? It's not necessary today. For those churches that do it, totally fine. It's a great symbolic thing, great example to do. But it was necessary back then. We know a little bit about what it was probably like, and this picture kind of depicts that it was a table that was probably a few feet off the ground. They would have been sitting on the ground with their feet extended back behind them. They lived in a culture where their feet would have been nasty. Think of the dirty, dusty, grimy roads. Think of the animal waste that would have been on the roads that they're walking in. Think of how dusty and dirty and grimy their feet would have been. What would have been their toenails would have been like? What would have been like in between their feet? This was an act that was usually done and usually performed by a servant. But this was a private dinner. None of the other disciples stepped up to do the foot washing. So Jesus leads by example 
and comes and washes each of their feet. And as we think about foot washing today, we might spend a few seconds on each foot and then move on to the next person. How long would have this have taken? How much time would Jesus have spent with each of them? The fact that it was more practical than ceremonial, Jesus probably spent a significant amount of time with each of them. If it was five minutes each, there's an hour of time that they spent having their feet washed by Jesus. If Judas was in the room, what would have been like for Jesus to be washing Judas's feet? What was it like for, for Jesus to wash Peter's feet? We know a little bit, and for time's sake, we're not going to look at it. When he gets to Peter, they have this back and forth in, uh, in verses 7 and, and beyond about what uh, the nature of him washing Peter's feet, but for time's sake, we want to help to understand what's happening and what's going on in this scene and this setting. So we jump forward to verse 12. When he had washed their feet, maybe an hour's worth of time, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? What would they have been thinking? Would they have been embarrassed that none of them had taken the lead to do this themselves? Did they understand what was happening and what was taking place? Certainly not fully. I don't think any of them responded. Verse 13. So Jesus continues. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Do you recognize that he is both in your life, both teacher and Lord? And as I said earlier, some people like to just view Jesus, oh, he's a good teacher, he's a good example, he had some good pithy things to say, and they recognize him as teacher only and not Lord. The claims that he made about himself, if they're true, don't leave us with that option to just allow Jesus to be a good teacher and a good example. Notice how he starts with this statement and now he's going to flip it, verse 14. Instead of saying teacher and Lord, as he did in verse 13, now he goes and says, if I then your Lord and teacher, as if to say Lord is the more important of the two. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He flips the order because Lord is more important. And he's teaching them what one another life looks like. He's teaching them what body life looks like. So oftentimes when we think about the church and we think about ministry, we too much allow business leadership models to work their way into the church. And so we set up and we establish a hierarchy just like the rest of the world does. But Jesus is establishing the way that we should treat one another in ministry context, the way that we should be with other believers. It is a reciprocal relationship of applying those one another's. And if this happens from greater to lesser, from Jesus their Lord and their teacher washing their feet, then how much more should those that are lesser, you and I and all those disciples, should we be doing it to one another? And if we are in a position of power, if we are in a position of authority, if we are ever in a position of influence, we should use our power, authority, and influence as an opportunity to serve. Leverage your power, leverage your authority, leverage your influence to serve 
others. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's the example that we follow. Verse 15, for I have given you an example. Doesn't mean that this has to be done. I don't think he's instituting like he did with communion and baptism. It's not a sacrament. But he's giving us an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. This is a heart thing, not a foot thing. As you think about what Jesus did on that night, can you think about somebody in your life who it would be very difficult for you to get down and wash their feet? Maybe as you come near the end of the semester, maybe it's a professor. Amen. There you go. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe, if I dare say, maybe it's a category of people. Maybe it's a type of person that you just couldn't imagine doing that to. And we always want to come back and think about Jesus washing the feet of the one who was about to betray him, another who was about to deny him, and the rest of them who were going to abandon him. He says, here's the example that I'm leaving you, and this is how you should live and mark your life. And now he comes to verse 16. And I think he's going to summarize everything that he's done for us. Truly, truly, verily, verily, if you're a King James person. Amen, amen. Pay attention. Listen to what I'm about to say to you, says Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, that's the disciples and that's you and I, is not greater than his master. Who's the master? Jesus is the master. Nor is a messenger, who's the messenger? That's you and I. Greater than the one who sent him, that's Jesus. Jesus has set us an example, and who are we? If we align ourselves rightly as followers of Jesus, we are servants and we are messengers. That is our job description. That is our purpose in life, whether you're in full-time ministry or not, whether you're in the business world, the secular world, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or dad or whatever your life looks like. Your job description given to us by our Lord and Savior is that we are a servant and a messenger, that we live our lives to serve others and we live our lives to be messengers to tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a select few that are chosen to be sent ones. We are all called to be servants and to be messengers and to be sent ones. And he has given us an example that if the master and the one who sent us, if this is the attitude that he takes towards us, then absolutely this is then the attitude that we take towards others. It is the paradox of Jesus Our master and the one who has sent us, our Lord and our teacher, humbly getting down on his hands and knees and giving us the example by washing our feet, by washing the feet of the disciples. The paradox of Jesus should lead us into the purpose for how we are to live our lives, no matter what our vocational calling might be. Verse 17 If you know these things, if you know them cognitively, blessed are you if you do them. We know, and Scripture makes it very clear, 
that we can be filled with all kinds of Bible knowledge. And if we're filled with all kinds of Bible knowledge and we're just hearers of the word and not doers of the word, we actually are deceiving ourselves. It's wonderful to know the word, to understand the word, to memorize the word. But if we are not doing and living out the word of God, living out what Jesus calls us to do, we are just deceiving ourselves. So he sums it up as he so often did by saying, hear, know, understand what I've done for you, understand this physical illustration that I've just done for you and taught you, now go and do likewise. As you consider the reality of being a follower of Jesus Christ, there are a lot of bad reasons to walk away from Jesus. But if you get to the place in your life that you're choosing and you're considering and you're thinking about walking away from him, are you willing to come back and not consider the actions and the behaviors of hypocritical and judgmental Christians, not consider the ways that we've been burned and hurt by a local church, not consider the fact that maybe our life hasn't turned out just the way that we wanted, but do we always need to come back and you, I, I implore you to come back to the reality and to understand the paradox and the reality of who Jesus is, understand the purpose of why he came, and know that the foundation of your faith is not based on judgmental or hypocritical Christians or the local church or your life turning out the way that you want it to. The foundation of your faith is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And until that is proven that it didn't take place, there's no other legitimate reason to walk away from your faith, no matter how your life has turned out. So be sure to consider the paradox of the reality of who Jesus is and the claims that he made. And let's align our life with that purpose as followers of him. I'd love to be able to pray for you, particularly those that are getting near that point of graduation. So let's bow and let me pray for you before we go. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, for the descriptive nature of those eyewitnesses who were with you, who then you inspired by your Holy Spirit to write it down for us so that it can be as if we are there, seeing firsthand what you taught, what you did, the way that you behaved, and the way that you set an example for us of how we should live and treat one another and treat this lost, hurting, dying, and broken world. Thank you for giving us this example. Thank you for preserving it in your word. Thank you for giving us a purpose to be your servants and your messengers, to serve others with love, unselfish love, and to proclaim a message that this lost, hurt, and dying world needs to hear. And so, Father, wherever our vocation might take us, whatever the ups and downs of life lead us, through it all, may we stay firmly committed to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray specifically for the seniors who are getting ready to graduate in just a short amount of time. Some are wondering what's next. Some know exactly what's next. I pray that you would lead and guide and direct. Open and close doors as you see fit. But I pray that you would preserve them in their walk and their faith with you. And Father, it could be that there's some in the room here today. Maybe they're just going through the motions with you. Maybe they're here at a wonderful school like this, but somewhat indifferent 
to who you are and to the claims of Christ. I pray that you would use the reality and the truth of your word to draw their hearts to you and that they could be firmly committed to you, even in the midst of their questions, even in the midst of their doubts, even in the midst of the struggles that might be there in their life. So Father, thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and through the finished work, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may it all be for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.